Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we are back for part three with Wendy Bingham, DPT, founder of the nonprofit called Extra Pelvic Not Rare, which is dedicated to starting conversation about extra pelvic endometriosis while providing correct, up-to-date information about the signs and symptoms, diagnosis, and appropriate treatment referrals. In this episode, we welcome Wendy back to speak about thoracic endometriosis, the symptoms, the treatment, how it's diagnosed, and more. We really appreciate Wendy taking the time to share her wealth of knowledge with us, and we are so happy to have her on the show. So welcome, Wendy. Hello again, Wendy. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. We're so glad that you're back this week so that we can continue to talk about extrapelvic endometriosis and how extrapelvic endometriosis is not rare. I really love that you coined that and that that is your name of your nonprofit and that is your slogan because it is the truth that we want to just keep hammering home is that extra pelvic endometriosis is not rare. So thank you again for your time this week. We are so, so happy to have you here. And I know this week we really want to hone in on extra pelvic endometriosis. So I'd love to ask you just like a really broad general question before we start getting into the nitty gritty about diaphragmatic endo and thoracic. And I'd love if you could just talk maybe a bit about like, what is your vision for endometriosis in the future? What is your vision for how we approach the disease? What is your vision to make it known to the world that extra pelvic endometriosis is not rare? Well, thank you, Amy. It's a very challenging disease. And my vision actually started from the fact that I was brought into this community later in life, having an atypical presentation and my medical background made me see the disease differently. I never looked at it as a reproductive disease because that's my experience with the disease. I know I'm not alone and I know I'm not the majority. You know, obviously the most common areas of diseases in the female reproductive areas and the region around it. But there's quite a few people that have disease that may have silent pelvic disease, and they are now being diagnosed when they have a respiratory event. And as well as when we talk maybe in the future today about cardiovascular disease, there's that potential of even recognizing people with potential endo based on cardiovascular presentations and early atherosclerosis. So I look at the disease as more of a disease with body-wide lesion potential and with systemic manifestations that can appear. I think it's time that we look at endometriosis outside of a female reproductive system problem. What I like to do is compare that. The statistics are that we know diabetes is 
a very common disease and endometriosis is just as common as diabetes. The difference here lies in diabetes is taught differently through school. Yes, we know that the origins of diabetes comes from the Islitzelangerhorn inside the pancreas. So we know its origin. What we also know about diabetes is the fact that there's systemic fallout from the disease. It causes inflammation in, in a variety of tissues and the sugar levels affect a lot of metabolic aspects of tissue throughout the body. We know that in diabetes, there are some major organs that are affected. So you know that we can have vision loss, we can have kidney dysfunction, people can develop lesions in the lower extremities, diabetic ulcerations, they can have amputations, they can develop again, a manifestation of cardiac disease. So they're more predisposed to heart attacks, high blood pressure. So when I look at endometriosis, I said, well, why can't we look at that disease the same way? We know that endometriosis itself creates systemic inflammation. So we know that there's a fallout on the cardiovascular system. We've seen that, whether it's associated or there's a direct association. We also know that there's effects on metabolism in the body and how we break down adipose tissue. We also know that there's a significant association to neurology, so the migraine situations. But we also know that there can be very specific organs in the body affected, not just reproductive. We know that it's found in, in the gastrointestinal system. We know that it's in the urinary system, the respiratory system, cutaneous system. And then we have the lesser known, the peripheral nervous system. There are some central issues that have been documented, but those are very, very rare. And I hate to use the word, but it is true. They're exceptional. So given this fact, if we looked at people with diabetes, we know that it's a percentage of those people that have these other manifestations, that they have ulcerations, that they have vision loss, that they lose a kidney. We know that it's not a huge percentage of the diabetes population but they're there. So it's the same aspect of taking endometriosis and saying, all right, well, we have people with disease in the bowels. We have bladder, ureter, diaphragm. We know that the disease is there. The difference is we don't know why it's there. And fair enough, it may have come from the uterus or it may have come from many periods when we're born or it can be from something else. And seriously, I got to ask myself, what does that have to do with all the tea in China? You know what I'm saying? It's the fact that the disease is there and we need to start looking at it this way. We need to start teaching it this way of saying that we can have the same kind of issues with the disease as diabetes has these other smaller aspects of the disease and it's all included. Why aren't we including that now? Because the less people know about it and they catch it, the longer that persons with this disease suffer and the delay is catastrophic. So my vision is to really look at that disease as more of a body-wide disease. And I want it to be taught in a way that we learn about diabetes in school. Oh, I've learned a lot about diabetes in school and how it applies to my profession, both directly if I'm working with people who have say amputations from diabetes and also the indirect component of I'm working with somebody with diabetes, but they don't have all these other deficits. I'm treating them for another illness, but they have this that's going on in the background. And I need to consider that in my treatment plan. So I see the disease going that direction. I see it as being taught at a level that we teach diabetes. I just want to clarify when you say school, you mean medical school. 
Yes, medical school, <laughs> also allied healthcare professional school, nursing programs, occupational therapy, physical therapy, you know, the whole gamut. I think that that's part of the problem that we have is this section of people that aren't being recognized and there's no documentation for it really. So how do we make the change? How do we make that jump? I really agree. I think there's a huge problem that endometriosis is just not being taught to medical professionals in their training. And I think especially it's important, not just that it be taught to gynecologists and doctors in general, but to all the different professionals that work with patient care. And I think if we can really start focusing on endometriosis and all of the different systemic effects that endometriosis has, I mean, as you said, you know, with diabetes, a percentage of people can have a very, very serious consequences while the same thing can happen with endometriosis. I mean, we know that we can have bowel obstruction. I had bowel obstruction. We know that we can have lung collapse. You've had lung collapse. We know that the kidney can have a silent kidney death if it's on the ureters. We've had some people with indwelling, like permanent nephrostomies. There is a tube, a drainage tube that's inserted directly in, into the kidney to allow the kidney to drain. They've had them inserted for prolonged periods of time in order to save the kidney. And um, we've also had people on the extremes of the disease who have lost bladder function and have permanent indwelling catheters or have to self-cath because nobody will treat them for their disease. There's a variety of situations. And we do see, sadly, that there are some people who are having permanent colostomy bags or a temporary colostomy bag. And the surgical process has improved remarkably that most people don't need a temporary or permanent colostomy where a section of the bowel is removed and a bag is attached to the exterior and that, therefore, you need to change your bag regularly. You know, these are all sad things that one, it's the inconsistency of care throughout the world. And two is the lack of the understanding of the disease, I think plays a big role in it. Some surgeons just assume, oh, that's the best we can do for you. And if that's how the surgeon feels, isn't it their responsibility to be updated and to know what's going on in the surgical aspect to care for this disease? And if I cannot treat it, I send somebody to somebody who can. I think that this is a really frustrating part, as well as the fact that as we've specialized in medicine, you're seeing less and less collaboration. And given the fact that, yes, I think the patient load is very high on doctors. They are handling a lot more patients today. They're not being reimbursed adequately for the skill set that they have. And these are all important things that they need to work out. And at the end of the day, who's the one that's suffering is the patient. We're the ones that are saying, I need a team who understands the disease so that I can get the care I need. And I don't want to have a colostomy bag for the rest of my life or even temporary. I don't want to have to self-cath. I don't want to have chest tubes put in when my lung goes down. I want somebody who knows the disease and is at least willing to try at this point until we understand it. I think that's where we're at. We're at a growing phase right now in understanding the disease. And we cannot learn the disease fast enough. There's people hurting now. There's people who've been hurting all along, but now the voices are being raised and the attention and the seriousness of the matter is there. And we can't wait for evidence-based management. The urgency is here and now. And so we're going to have learning mistakes as we search through and understand the disease. We're going to have Patients that 
may have disease in one area and not really be there, but they're presenting like that. Is that wrong? You know, that's a questionable thing because we have to learn about the disease and we have to learn from positive and negative cases. This is how we move forward in this. It's been done for generations now with other areas of disease. So it's time for us to go to the plate and more investment is needed to get us to that point. I think all of this really continues to hammer home the points with everything that we just mentioned that endometriosis really is a full body disease and endometriosis is very serious and it can also lead to very serious consequences. And, you know, before we move on to the next topic, we do want to just say that everything we just talked about, whether having to self-cath or a lung collapse or a bowel obstruction, I mean, these things can happen, but also we don't want anyone to think that just because you have endo on your bladder means you'll end up having a catheter or just because you have endo on your bowels means you'll end up with a colostomy bag. These are not common. And so they happen, but it's not that every single person who has endo in a certain area, like endo on their ureters, is going to end up with silent kidney death. And the important thing that we we need to look at is that what I've seen in the medical community in general, as a practitioner, and maybe this is just my personal view of it, endometriosis has never been taken very seriously in the community, and it continues to not be taken seriously. Where were the days when I look at other issues that we have with the body that we should be taking a condition serious from the start? Because you're going to miss those people that have serious disease. And you should overemphasize a disease you're concerned as a doctor until proven otherwise. Instead of approaching it in a laissez-faire way that I feel we are being treated right now. And, oh, yeah, it's there. Okay, it's no big deal. And I think, again, that goes back to the definition, the definition of being, it's just glands and stroma. Oh, no, let's change that definition because you really need to understand what happens to the tissue. And I think this is stuff that we need to say. This is a progressive disease. It's just not a disease you have and that you can manage. If you have progressive endo, you're going to have progressive issues. So, Wendy, I would love if you could talk a little bit about endometriosis in the respiratory system. I know that we get a lot of listeners asking about thoracic endometriosis. And before you start, I just want to highlight a really nice resource that you have on your website. And I'm going to link that in the show notes today on my website in 16years.com. But you have a really amazing video on your website. It's lesson four. And you give a basically like a 20 minute presentation in depth on diaphragmatic endometriosis. So if you want to have more information on diaphragmatic endometriosis, we really recommend that video that Wendy has put together on her website. Wendy, thank you so much for all that hard work in that video. So I'd love if you could tell us more about, you know, what is respiratory endometriosis and where is it found? What are the symptoms? How is it usually diagnosed? Thoracic endo, it's a pretty broad area and it's a very, very popular topic at the moment. And I think it's popular in part because it's been suggested the diaphragm endometriosis in particular, which is one area of thoracic endo, is probably the most common undiagnosed area of extrapelvic endometriosis that we know of to date. I am questioning that there's a couple areas, other areas in our body as well that may have a similar situation of being fairly prevalent, but not recognized. I do want to do a little plug 
video number five is coming out as soon as I can get it together. Um, it's in the format and it talks specifically about lung collapses, both catamenial and what we call TERP. And I'll discuss that a little bit later. But going back to thoracic endo, it's been around for documented for at least the last hundred years. Again, it's spread sporadically through the literature. In about 1996, Joseph and Son had done a study and they coined the term thoracic endometriosis syndrome. It represents the common manifestations of the disease. And to clarify, a manifestation is something that you can see on imaging. It's something that can be objectively observed. So for example, right now, chest pain isn't considered a manifestation that we can see. So there's four manifestations. And I will say that the majority of people who have thoracic endometriosis, and this is based on what we're seeing in the community, even publications, do not develop a manifestation. So the large portion of our community do not develop a catamenial pneumothorax, catamenial hemoptysis, or hemothorax, or lung, active lung nodules. So when I refer to catamenial, that basically represents is it's a great term and it means, you know, around the menses. There's a couple time windows. The original time window was 72 hours before your period, through the start of your period, and up to 72 hours after your period starts. There was a narrower version made, which includes 24 hours before your period, through the start of your period, and up to 72 hours afterwards that any of these manifestations happen. So when we talk about a pneumothorax, that's referring to a lung collapse, and that is different than a telexstasis that you're hearing. That word comes out in our community a lot. A spontaneous pneumothorax is when there's air that gets lodged between the lung itself and the chest wall. And it can get there from rupturing blebs. We believe it can get there through holes in the diaphragm when during the, the menstrual cycle, the, the tubes open, air comes in through the vagina. There's a variety of contexts. Some people don't know how the air gets there. When they look inside, they're like, the air is here, but how did it get here? So that's a pneumothorax. Catamenial hemothorax is more related to bloody fluids that accumulate in the chest. It's highly common when you have endometriosis lesions of the chest wall. Then we have catamenial hemoptysis, which is a less frequent form of presentation where a person with the disease will cough up blood the first day of, usually the first day of the menstrual cycle. And when I mean coughing up blood, it's usually a range of anywhere between, say, clear sputum that has streaks of blood in it to two to three teaspoons is what the literature is providing us of red blood. And that's when there are lesions that are in the bronchial airway system or within the lung tissue that is close to the airway. Then we also have what's called lung nodules. It's really important that people understand that there's lung nodules that can be endometriosis, and there's also a gamut of diseases that can have lung nodules in the chest. So lung nodules are fairly common. And when you get radiology and they go, you have a lung nodule, you know, I don't want people to think, oh my gosh, endometriosis right away. There is endometriosis that can be active or inactive in the lungs. The important thing is, is if it's active disease, most people are going to have some shortness of breath related to it. And again, they may cough up blood with it. If the lesion is close to the chest wall inside the lung, they can have pain with it. But the really determining factor is suggestive of endometriosis. If you have imaging done in the middle of your cycle or in a period of your cycle where you don't have symptoms and you get an image done, 
and they could see the nodules. Then you have an episode that you're symptomatic. So during the symptomatic episode, you want to have a, a lung image done again. And CT is usually right now the method of imaging you want to detect that. What they find is usually that a, a nodule will expand in size. It may lose its border, so it's not as well-defined. And a lot of times it takes on what's called the um, ground glass opacities. So it, it looks very disorganized. But if you were to compare the image when you were not having symptoms to when you are symptomatic, there would be a, a difference in how it looks on the imaging. So if you were to look at uh, how frequent this happens, again, manifestations, these four are less common than what we see catamenial chest pain. But out of those, catamenial pneumothorax is, is about three quarters of the presentations. And then the other three are divvied up from most to least frequent would be catamenial hemothorax, catamenial hemoptysis, and active lung nodules. Just recently, though, there's a lot of case reports coming out about other things that we need to consider about thoracic endometriosis. So they wanted to expand the thoracic endometriosis syndrome to include catamenial chest pain, which in other words, it's cyclical, appears at your period, to pleural infusions. So you're having fluid in the chest cavity that may not have blood in it, or just a very small amount of blood, and diaphragm herniations, which is more common you see in advanced disease where either the lesions have sloughed off or they developed full thickness through the diaphragm that has now resulted in the diaphragm becoming less tolerant to stresses. And here I reiterate, the diaphragm is only a couple millimeters thick. So thinking about that, you know, we know how big a centimeter is. Well, even if you did it to uh, one third of a centimeter is about the thickness of the diaphragm. And so that's, that's pretty thin. And the diaphragm is extremely flexible. It's a really fascinating organ. It has so many functions that I think people just think it's about respiration, but it does so many more than that. And that if we lead towards the diaphragm here in our conversation, We'll explain why there's a variety of different symptoms that happen and not just, I have shortness of breath or I have referred pain in this area. So the hard part is, is with thoracic endometriosis, we don't know again how prevalent it is. The proposed ICD-11s that we talked about in the first episode of this session is going to include thoracic endometriosis. It won't include the specific areas of tissue involved. So Dr. Yazdanan, in 2014, he provided an estimate that 2.3 to 5.6% of persons with endometriosis, pelvic, abdominal pelvic endometriosis, have disease somewhere in the respiratory system. And I think that's really important. The fact that we don't know the prevalence is hindering us for further progress, obviously, and, and developing diagnostics. And we also know that imaging is very inconsistent in ability to detect the disease in different locations. So the sensitivity is still lacking there. And we also know that there is a tendency for the disease to have a right-sided predilection. And I do want to clarify that if you were to look at the spectrum of disease over time, and it, let's just say focus on catamenial pneumothoraxes. When I talk about catamenial pneumothoraxes, I also want to include what we call thoracic endometriosis-related pneumothoraxes. The nomenclature for thoracic endometriosis is progressing very quickly in the last few years. And when you think of catamenial pneumothoraxes, those are specifically going to occur in that catamenial time frame, so much time ahead of the period, at the start of the period, and so much following the period. 
Acadaminial pneumothorax may or may not have histological confirmation of endometriosis in the chest cavity. So there's still a lot of debate on how we're diagnosing thoracic endometriosis. The standards, there's questions of standards about diagnosis in the thorax that is different than abdominal pelvic disease. So for now, we're using catamenial pneumothorax for that, for to clarify if you have a, a pneumothorax in that period of time, but you don't have confirmation. The other part is called TERP, thoracic endometriosis-related pneumothoraxes. Those are occurring both in the catamenial period and any time of the month. Those are pneumothoraxes that are confirmed. They've had a tissue sample, and it was confirmed that there's endometriosis cells there. The interesting part is the catamenial pneumothoraxes, if I include the whole group of them, so both TERP or ERP, depending on whose who's nomenclature you want to use for that and which article the authors are, and catamenial pneumothoraxes, about one-third of those people who are given the diagnosis of primary spontaneous pneumothorax are actually misdiagnosed and should be termed catamenial or TERP endometriosis, depending on the time frame. We know that out of that cluster of a third of those with catamenial or TERP that are misdiagnosed, about 25% of primary spontaneous pneumothoraxes are truly catamenial. The other about 8% that are misdiagnosed, 8 to 10% misdiagnosed as having a primary spontaneous pneumothorax are truly endometriosis-related pneumothoraxes. So there's a lot there that we have to learn about the disease and recognize. So you hear a lot of this right-sided prevalence, and I want to make this clear for our audience. Yes, it's highly right-sided dominant, but that does not mean to exclude the fact that it does occur on the left side and both sides. In fact, I'm looking at some studies in Japan, and it's really fascinating. They looked at what we call adolescent pneumothoraxes. And they were finding that those people that are under the age of 20 that were initially diagnosed as primary spontaneous pneumothoraxes actually had catamenial pneumos when they went through the literature. They were starting to break down and they compared people that had primary pneumothoraxes and those that had catamenial that were assigned female at birth. The propensity for catamenial pneumothorax was higher percentage than it was for primary spontaneous pneumothorax in the left side. So what they were seeing is that the persons that were having catamenial pneumothoraxes, and if you were under the age of 20, you had more likely to have it involved the left lung than the right lung. But when you look at the overall studies from the age of 20 to 30, 30 to 40, 40 to 50, the propensity for it to become right-sided grows each decade. So once you hit the 20 to 30 mark, it's significantly higher to be right-sided than the left, but then after that, it's even higher and higher each decade. So I think that's a really fascinating thing that we should be looking at, that distribution and maybe some kind of etiology to, you know, what causes them. We also know that with the disease, it is a tendency to be right-sided, and this is all disease. So this isn't just pneumothoraxes now. So we'll move on to thoracic endometriosis in general, regardless of what tissues involved. The right side is 85 to 90% of the time, give or take a few percentage points and the size of the studies, the data collected. So we know that right side is predominant. Then there's a tendency to involve both sides more than just left-sided alone. 
So that's a really interesting way to look at the disease. If you were to look at the tissues involved with endometriosis that we know today, and given how we're still learning how to correctly diagnose it and maybe changing the, the histological and immunohistochemical criteria for the disease, once we change that, which I hope we're heading that direction, may change the percentages of distribution a little bit. But right now we know that the vast majority of disease affects the diaphragm first. That is like above all else. That is the first place that you want to consider. The second most common area of endometriosis lesions will be the chest wall with a lining over the diaphragm, which is called the parietal pleura. And then in the third in the hierarchy would be the outer surface of the lung, which is called the visceral pleura. Within the lung, which is the lung parenchyma and the airways would be the lesser common. So when somebody comes in with symptoms, a lot of the symptoms overlap regardless of the area of the lesion. So if I have lesion in a chest wall that's close to the diaphragm, it's going to have a very similar presentation to what I would have on the diaphragm. We do know though that disease, when it's on the outer surface of the lung itself, the lung doesn't have pain fibers, but the lung sits up. There's a tiny amount of fluid between the lung and the chest wall. And the chest wall has a lot of innervation. So it's excruciatingly painful to have a lesion there. And I think that it's really important that the doctors out there who are listening or healthcare providers understand that you can have a lesion affecting the respiratory system that's stimulating the phrenic nerve. The body doesn't know any difference between a small lesion and a major catastrophic event. All it knows is C345, my innervations of my diaphragm, are the same innervations that the heart has. So the brain's going to tell us, whoa, something's wrong. Something's very wrong. And our body mechanism is built in a way to alert us that something is wrong. And the body's going to do what it can to shut itself down. It's a protective mechanism. That's why we have a rib cage. If we don't have our heart and lungs working, then, you know, what's the point, right? That's our vital organs. So I think it's really important that it not be poo-pooed on if you have superficial disease or if you have deep disease. It may be only millimeters. The brain doesn't know that. That reality has to, has to be a driving point when someone comes into the emergency room and they've got referred pain up into their jaw and their ears or into their shoulder and they can't breathe. Endometriosis needs to be considered. So I just want to clarify that the word innervation means that the area has many, many nerves, right? So you said that, for example, the lung doesn't have nerves itself, but then you said that the chest wall is innervated, which means that the chest wall does have a lot of nerves. And so then the brain picks up those signals that are coming in from the chest walls, right? That's how the brain is interpreting that there's pain. And as you said, the brain doesn't know if it's only a superficial lesion or an enormous lesion, I don't know, the size of a dime or a quarter, half. Yeah, exactly. I mean, endometriosis in the respiratory system, which is everything you've just been talking about, it's very serious and it, it hurts and it needs to be taken seriously by the doctor, by the ER, and just by the medical community in general. Yes, it brings me to an interesting point. Um, I was trying to do some research to investigate the amount. So if you were looking at how our body has sensory nerves all over our body, right? 
there's a density level that I think exists in the chest cavity that doesn't exist elsewhere. With exception to say the hand, the hand is, is the biggest area of mapping in our brain that's telling us because we use everything, we manipulate things with our hands. So we have a lot of sensory and a lot of motor. So the information we're getting from our hands takes up a large area of mapping in our brain and how we use the hand. When it comes to actually sensory, so those afferent, those nerves that are going to detect pain, pressure, you know, mechanical tension, the more dense those nerves are, that's going to be a driving force to your brain. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find literature that can really objectify driving home that message of, you know, a small area the size of a dime or a quarter of noxious input, painful input in one area of the body versus within the chest, how different that is interpreted to your brain and how, you res- how your body responds to it. So I think that's where I'm trying to find more evidence to drive home that message that no matter how small that lesion is, it can really put your whole nervous system into a, in a world because it's saying, hey, I need attention. Something's wrong here. I remember in some of the research, it was showing that the visceral pain compared to the somatic pain is much different and they're quite distinct. And so somatic pain comes from the skin and the muscles and the soft tissues. And then visceral pain comes from the internal organs. So you have somatic, you have visceral innervations and autonomic innervations of like the bowels for function. The bladder is unique because it has autonomic function. It contracts and relaxes, but it also has somatic pain. So when people talk about having pain, sharp pains in their bladder, what you're feeling, that sharp pain is the actual bladder muscle, that detrusor muscle. It has a real name to it and it contracts and relaxes, and it's being expanded. So if you have a lesion that's affecting its ability to expand and contract and it's pulling on the lesions, ouch. And you can get those sharp type pains versus the visceral type pain that I got that achy pain in my groin from my bladder or just it's a, just a deep, annoying pain. That's more of a visceral pain. And in the chest wall, it's interesting, the chest wall and the diaphragm, chest wall, the pleura is lined in it. It's a very pinpoint. So we call pleural pains, very sharp. It's like you're being stuck with a nab or an ice pick over and over again. And same with the diaphragm that there's those sharp pains that you can get because the diaphragm is a muscle on the outside and a tendon on the inside. So it has the same pain input that you're going to get from you know, your bicep, if you tear a bicep, pull a bicep muscle or something. And I think that presentation being a little bit different can throw off doctors who are used to treating visceral pain and and not really catching that it presents a little differently in the chest. They're used to the referred pain because we know that nerves can refer. So the diaphragm can refer along that phrenic nerve. And that's where you can get the shoulder pain, the clavicle, the ear, the jaw, the throat, down the arm, the scapula. That's a big one. So yeah, there's, there's that distinction there. So I know you said that within the respiratory system, that diaphragmatic endometriosis is the most common presentation and seems to be the most underdiagnosed endometriosis of that system at this time. So can you talk a little bit further about diaphragmatic endometriosis. And then I want to just remind the listeners again that Wendy has made a really nice 20-minute video on her website all about diaphragmatic endometriosis. 
and it's a video, you know, with animation. So it's really easy to follow along with and to learn more in depth about it. Again, we don't have a way of, of really understanding the true percentage out there because there is no tracking. But for the diaphragm specifically, I've seen studies estimate as low as one-tenth of a percent to up to 1.5% of our community. My personal view is it's higher than that. It's knowing how to look for it, how to find it surgically, and then how to remove it as current problem that we have. Dr. Cesaroni had done a study and he took 150 patients that he'd seen over a few years and he compiled his data. And we do know obviously that the right side again versus right and left and then left side is the progression of disease of how it's distributed on the diaphragm. We also know that superficial disease is much more common than deep disease of the diaphragm. And also that persons that have a higher staging of pelvic disease, so stage three and four are more likely to have disease of the diaphragm than those of stage one or two. But I will reiterate here, and the literature will verify this, you can have isolated disease of the diaphragm. You can have isolated thoracic endometriosis and have either A, no pelvic disease or B, silent disease. And again, the respiratory system that we're slowly catching on, if a patient comes in with a certain presentation, particularly pneumothorax, which you can get with diaphragm disease, and it can occur down the road as the disease progresses. That is a mechanism that we believe creates that. But this is a driving force for them to suggest to do a pelvic laparoscopy if the patient doesn't have symptoms or they may have some symptoms suggestive of pelvic endo. So now we're doing the flip side. It used to be that, well, you had to have really heavy disease to have diaphragm disease. And then you had to have really heavy disease to have a lung collapse or pleural effusion. And now the tables are starting to turn and a few small people are saying, wait a minute, they may have silent disease or they have disease that nobody's really even concentrated on picking up because they've had symptoms, whether they are reproductive system driven symptoms or they are other things like urinary problems or IBS, things like that. So with the diaphragm, it's interesting because it's mostly right upper quadrant pain that people will have knowing that's a right side predominant. You can also have a very distinct pain in the scapula. It feels like it's in the bone or you can have a deep gnawing pain in your clavicle. You can have pain, shooting pains that go up into your ear, underneath your jaw, the side of your neck. Some people have carryover that the pain is so strong in the brain, the brain then says, wait a minute, I got this pain going down my arm. So there's a variety of things in addition to shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, and things like um, nausea, heartburn, and hiccups. We have to remember that the diaphragm plays a role in not just breathing, but it plays a role in circulation, plays a role in digestion, plays a role in posture, body positioning against gravity. So understanding how the disease is distributed and, and its percentages of superficial versus deep disease, we also have to look at the type of disease that is involved. The largest portion is those that are nodules. So they're, they're nodules and they can have a cyst filled with fluid or just be a nodule hard piece. We also have what's called plaque disease. And this is important because imaging right now, there's only one validation study. What do we do? What do we test? How do we find diaphragm disease? It's good that Rosette Jablonski and her team created a validation study. And what they did was they used the magnetic resonant imaging 
which detects really good soft tissue um, versus a CT scan. A CT scan, because the diaphragm is very, very thin and it sits close to the liver, it's not very good at detecting lesions. The MRI is really good because it can delineate the diaphragm better. But when they did their study, they found 78 to 83% of persons with endometriosis in their study, the lesions were detected. And you go, wow, that's really good, right? First off, I want to clarify that that leaves a portion of people that aren't being picked up with imaging. Further, I love what they did. They opened the conversation about the disease, but they also limited the people that were involved in their study. And this is really important to me. The study was limited to a couple dozen people. And the people that were included in the study that had radiological imaging or in their control group were people that had pain that was specific to their period. They also had pain that was relieved by birth control. So Amy, you tell me, how many people have endometriosis pain that goes beyond the catamenial period? It's a large portion, right? And how many people aren't able to tolerate birth control or have their symptoms managed by birth control? There's a portion out there. So what I feel like, it's a false representation that they excluded people who had pain throughout the month or at other times of the month, the same kind of pain, and that people that didn't have the pain relief with birth control. And honestly, in my perspective is, is that's people with advanced disease. And when you have advanced disease, that may show up differently on imaging or may not show up on imaging because the MRI is going to be looking for specific attributes suggesting that there's disease there. So I kind of have this question in my head of saying, how sensitive really is it? And I'm looking to do a study here soon. It's going to come out in the next few months. And it's a survey. It's a subjective way that the persons with the disease are going to be able to tell me, hey, what kind of imaging did you have? We know that very, very small number of people have imaging, MRI imaging done for diaphragm disease. We also know that a large portion of our persons, whether they had MRI imaging or didn't have imaging of, say, with just a CT or X-ray only, that didn't have disease detected, that disease is found. So I take the 78 to 83% with a grain of salt of saying those are people that if they fit their group that they studied with disease symptoms limited to that particular period of time and relieved by birth control, then that's the probabilities that it'll be detected prior to surgery. So you really have to go with the presentation of the symptoms, the characteristics, how they're presenting, the descriptions that they have. Do they have a history of endometriosis? We know that if they have a history of it or if they have symptoms of it, that does increase the likelihood they have the disease, but it shouldn't exclude them from having it if they don't. The other thing that we need to consider is that endometriosis of the diaphragm can exist on both sides. There's this fallacy out there, this myth that's still out there. If you don't have disease on the abdominal side of the diaphragm, you don't have diaphragm disease. That's incorrect. I don't want to give you statistics of how common it is on the chest side only because it's a wide range depending on who did the study. It was some that found 20%, some found 50%. We do know it exists on the chest side only. And we have a lot of people in our group that have chest side only diaphragm disease. And you can look through a laparoscopy if you have, let's say, a full thickness disease, cuts all the way through the diaphragm, 
and you're treating that on the lap, you're doing laparoscopy, you're taking that out and you can put the camera in and scowl around and look. It's a cursory glance. One is you're limited to what you can see and two that you haven't deflated the lung to really see the whole chest cavity. Now, time will tell whether persons that have endometriosis, say, selected to the diaphragm and they use that approach, do they usually only have disease that's limited there and that by removing that diaphragm disease, they no longer have symptoms? So that's what we need to look at down the road. And also, it's really important that our readers who feel they may have diaphragm disease understand that there are many, many things that can cause pain referral in the same distribution. You can also get pain referral from the pelvic floor. And I know the endometriosis summit is going to have a discussion about that, a special section about, you know, referral to different organs. I've felt referral from the sacroiliac joint that's gone up to my chest. Knowing I've had the disease, I can look at it and I can decipher that. But I think that the average person who hasn't been on the other side of it, gone through the surgery and everything and looked back, been able to distinguish the two, it's really important that you start from the most probable to the least probable cause of the pain that you're having. And so that would be, are you seeing a pelvic floor therapist? Let's rule out things that can interfere and cause that shortness of breath and and the difficulty breathing. Are you at that period of time where your gallbladder, and as we get older, our gallbladder is more susceptible because of estrogen, of referring pain to these areas. The bowels, the way the bowels work in that area can refer pain up. Even our heart isn't left-sided. So it's really important that our readers understand that, that you're working with an endometriosis specialist that looks at those things and say, okay, given the probability of what staging you are, how you're presenting, do you have all these other conditions that we need to rule out? That's really important for our readers who are questioning if they have diaphragm disease, also consider that and be aware of that. I do just want to go back and say that when you were speaking about the respiratory system endometriosis and talking about MRI and CTs and some of the studies that's been done and some of the ways that endometriosis can be picked up on the scans. But we just want to be clear that scans can rule in endometriosis, which means that scans can, you know, let the doctor know that there's a suggestion of endometriosis there, like it could potentially be endometriosis. But what scans cannot do is scans cannot rule out endometriosis. And I think that's really important because there are a lot of doctors that think that if you have a negative CT or you have a negative MRI, then you don't have endometriosis on that body part they were looking at being a CT of your lung or an MRI of your diaphragm or MRI of your bowel. And they look and they're like, oh, there's nothing. This CT or this MRI is clean. So it's not endo. And Wendy, as you were saying, there are studies that have shown that the percentage rate of what the, like, for example, with the diaphragmatic endometriosis, the percentage of what the MRI could pick up was around like 70 something percent, 70, 80%. So that's not everyone. And additionally, that was only for people, that study was only done on people who have symptoms on their period and who also responded with their symptoms to birth control. So we know that scans are not picking up 100% of disease. And so I think it's just really important because I myself was told various times that my scans were clear and I did not have uh, bowel endometriosis. The same with ultrasound. Your ultrasound's clear. You don't have endometriosis. And that is just, unfortunately, it's a very outdated concept that many doctors are working under. I know that scans can show us a lot. Scans can rule out other things, but it cannot rule out endometriosis. 
Yes, I agree. And the fact that it's called diagnostic imaging, and I think that we need to reconsider that term because it's uh, the clinical evaluation that really drives disease. A uh, image is, is more of an augmentive. It's a supplement to support or refute a diagnosis. So a negative scan should not be the make or break on a disease. Thank you, Wendy, for all that information. That was a lot of information, but I know it's a really important topic, and I think it's just not talked about enough in our community. Of course, I will put in the show notes where you can reach Wendy, because Wendy has a Facebook group, has an Instagram, has a website all around extra pelvic, not rare. So I'm going to put those right in the show description and the show notes today so you'll have access to Wendy. So Wendy, thank you so much. On behalf of all the listeners, we have been amazed and astounded and fascinated by all of your knowledge. It's been really fun. 